Good morning and welcome to Sport and Life with Sam Kekovich and Leon Wigard. Sam, hello. Hello, Leon. I've got to say one thing. Uh, I'm still in a state of flux. I'm slightly confused. I'm tad adult and discombobulated. You'll, put, you'll probably ask yourself. Confused? Confused. You'll probably say, why? And I know what you're going to say because I'm a migrant son and I'm uneducated. But that's not the reason why, Leon. The reason I am, I've been watching the footy again. Oh, yes. And I still, for the life of me, can't understand and why they persist with these inane free kicks. The 50-metre rule and this putting your hand up or gesticulating that you're annoyed at the umpire and it's viewed as dissent or lack of respect. It is just driving me insane. Our game has become so sterile and any wonder they're only getting thirteen to 15,000 of the games. The, the crowds have dropped off at an enormous rate. I don't know what your views are. Have you thought <coughs> about a discussion we had a couple of podcasts again with Darren Lehman when you said the cricketers like you and the cricketing public like you, Darren, because you're no rubbish about you. I think you might have used the word bulldust. But, Champion uh, people, yeah. you kept it. You kept it pretty simple. Uh, you kept all that foreign stuff out of the way. Yeah. And he was there when, uh, in fact, our next guest is is in the same field where he's a tennis, per- oh, great tennis person, and he was there at the time when all of a sudden the game started being affected by outside influences, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, you know, dietitians and all that. Now, you can understand it, I suppose, but I think it, it's detrimental to umpiring in today's AFL footy. I really don't think they know what they're doing. Now, I know that Hawthorne uh, beat Fitzroy, or the old Fitzroy, Brisbane Lions, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, by a point, uh, five points. In but the number of free kicks and, the, and the, the amount of misunderstanding about what the free kicks were for, I was sitting here, I wasn't wild, I was mystified. You know, and you said perfectly, you know, there's no doubt it's over-umpired, it's become over-technical, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me, sanitised. Yeah, but the rules that are confusing people. You know, this one of, you know, disrespect... You know, when people make an error, it's only a natural human instinct that, you you know, you, you're hard on yourself. You know, you go, oh, damn it. You know, they, they're inferring that it's a direct assault, a direct affront at them and they're, and they're, and they're adjudicating uh, accordingly. Next time, you'll, honestly, the amount of 50-metre penalties are for and silly free kicks for nothing, it's going to determine the outcome. It has already, let me tell you. It's, it's, it's determined the outcome of a couple of games and the, and the, and the, and the paying public have just had a gut full of it. Those, those running umpiring, which is Barry Richardson's son, for one, yeah, Dan. and a few others, um, they've obviously not seen the success of US baseball. Well... Because they, they love that. They love that. Exactly right. But if it's not broken, why fix it? Our game, look, it's a simple game. Leave it at that. It's a people's game. And look, get back to basics. We don't need to tamper with it. The more tampering and tinkering we've done with it, it's destroying its very, very appeal. So let's move on. I mentioned Darren Lehman before. He was a left-hander. He was a left-hander. left-handed bat. And so was Neil Fraser <coughs> in, in tennis. And what a tennis player he Ooh, was. Oh, he's my favourite. Is that a fact? He was my favourite. I remember the old mate days when we used to listen on the radio when I was in Myrtleford as a kid. 
because radio, the wireless as we called it, was the only form of communication. And I used to listen to Neil Fraser serving left hand swinger down the sideline. Old Mato returns at forehand and cross court, backhand, forehand, cross court, chip return. No, Fraser! Neil, Neil's won the point by this. Yeah, he won the. No. <laughs> Oh, no, he was a good seven volley. I know that, but that was predominantly the game of the Australians then. But every now and again, he could rally as well. Well, he's a golfer these days, and we say good morning to him. He's online. Uh, Neil Fraser, good morning to you. Good morning, Leon. How are you well? Morning, morning, Sam. Ah, good morning, great nice man. Nice to talk to you guys. I agree all wholeheartedly <laughs> about your, uh, the football uh, situation. Do you? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, Ridiculous, some of the free kicks that are given. Now, when you were uh, captain of the Davis Cup side for, well, about a quarter of a century. 24 years. Yeah. Um, did you did you have all those helpers around the place? <laughs> uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> I took away my first team in 19... Uh, um, oh, dear me. Uh, I forget the year now. About 1965, um, as a... Uh, uh, the association asked me to uh, take a team away, I guess, to test whether I was uh, up to the task of looking after players for uh, about four or five months overseas, um, um, travelling the world playing tennis. I had five players to look after. I was the coach, I was the ca- captain, I was the, the psychiatrist, I was Dishwasher. the trainer, I was everything, a travel agent. Um, uh, <laughs> And uh, I obviously survived because I came back a couple of years later. They appointed me captain of the Davis Cup team. Although you had a very good mentor in the great Harry Hopman, no doubt. You would have uh, picked up one or two tips off the great man, the old wily old fox. No, no doubt about that. Um, Yes, uh, I came, uh, I was in uh, Davis Cup squads with him from 1953, 93 to 63. Um, And so uh, um, I saw a lot of uh, uh, good things and some uh, not so good things, but uh, uh, no, he was a, a, a person that we all look up to and he was a person that uh, opposition players uh, feared and you, you, you turned up with Hopman by your side, um, you sort of had a bit of a start. And what, what uh, about Harry Hopman, I, I, I know a lot about him, uh, I don't think I ever met him, but he was involved with the sports club in uh, Swanson Street. There, he was an original yes, member of the yes. of the, um, uh, uh, the Carbon Club. There, where um, some sports club he tried to get off the ground. It didn't. Uh, it didn't last. Um, but um, he was very much. He was a, a writer for the Herald, a sports writer for the Herald uh, in his early days, and. Um, um, well, he was also a reasonable tennis player. He played uh, uh, the Grand Slams. He, uh, he didn't win any singles titles, but he won uh, some doubles titles with uh, Jack Crawford. And, uh, uh, of course, his wife, Nell, was a, quite an accomplished tennis player. But you are going back in the 40s and the 50s, uh, uh, um, long time ago. Neil, nostalgia is a wonderful thing, and our history is an imperative, so... Yeah, it's not strange. We look at the uh, look at the things that uh, made us grow, and yesterday did make us grow. Tell me, uh, the Fraser story is interesting. Uh, what led you into uh, 
into tennis? Why weren't you into footy and cricket, the more uh, more mainstream sports in Australia at the time? Well, um, in the early 40s, my parents moved to a house in uh, South Yarra, which was right next door to the region tennis courts. And your original house was in Turak, was it not? No, no, no. <laughs> we were originally in Garden Vale. I was born in Garden Vale. Um, and then they moved to a uh, house in South Yarra. And uh, it was right next door to the region tennis courts. And I guess I was around about uh, 11. Um, so it was um, around about 44. It was just the wall was just... Uh, uh, we were getting on top of the wall. Um, but um, their backyard was very small. I was one of five children. And uh, our parents suggested, or our mother in particular, said, uh, you know, there's no room for you children to be playing in the backyard. What about going in and playing tennis in the courts next door? And uh, I had a younger brother, John, and I had uh, two older sisters, and then I had an older brother. So there was five of us. And, um, of course, at my age of 11, my... my, uh, siblings were uh, too good for us uh, at that time but gradually um, as the years went by um, I got on top of them and um, uh, I I loved uh, at school I played uh, cricket and I played football um, in particular and did a bit of outs and that you do all those sort of sports in those days but um, tennis I grew into more so because of the courts next door and uh, then a coach Brian Slattery came along to be teaching in that uh, club and um, he took me under my wing as he took my brother John under our wing and we were able to practice and coach with him right next door for uh, uh, well from 44 to you know 50s and John uh uh, people probably don't know how well he went at Wimbledon one year. He, went, he did medicine. He did medicine. Did his residency two years after that. He won the Coles three thousand or uh, quiz, um, and and got some money out of that. And it was uh, uh, through that um, money I took him under. Uh, under my wing and I took him overseas in 1962 or 63 not too sure now and he got through to the semi-finals of the singles at Wimbledon that's a huge effort isn't it and and, uh, Neil we we know that you won three of the Grand Slams two US Opens and a Wimbledon would you trade your two two US Opens for the one Wimbledon Uh, probably <laughs> um, Wimbledon is definitely the uh, uh, the crown in the the jewel in the crown, uh, no doubt. Because um, when uh, you know talking about those forties, we used to listen to the radio from Wimbledon, and uh, it really um, got into your skin that you wanted to go to Wimbledon, you wanted to play at Wimbledon, and of course when you got there, you wanted to win matches, and and then after a period of time playing there for a number of years you definitely wanted to win Wimbledon and uh, I was lucky enough to be a good mate of mine who who had beaten me in the Australian Championships the same year but uh, Rod Laver 
I managed to beat him in the final Wimbledon and it's definitely uh, the best achievement I had in in my tennis career as a player myself but my most the best highlight I ever had in tennis was the 1959 Davis Cup when uh, uh, we we beat America in America uh, 3-2 um, and I, I won both singles and the doubles um, to win the Davis Cup back for Australia in uh, 1959 uh, and what a great side the Yanks had too Yanks had yes, uh, uh, Barry McKay, Alex Almeida, Ham Richardson, uh, Richardson Butch Buckholz. Yeah, uh, yeah. No. but it was a hard task. We were we played seven matches, Davis Cup ties between Wimbledon and the US. We didn't play any tournaments. We just played Davis, Davis Cup, Cup matches. We played Canada. We played Cuba. We played Mexico. We played um, Italy. We played India. Yep, um, and then we played America, all all in a, a period of time between Wimbledon and the US, which is uh, what early July to early September. Mm. Well, Davis Cup was the pinnacle. I mean, so it's lost its luster now, but a little bit more of that uh, a little later. But uh, I grew up uh, loving tennis, and as I said to you, I listened intently on the wireless. And I remember the great Australian players of Mal Anderson, Ashley Cooper, Fred Stoley, uh, Neil Fraser, and... Roy Emerson. Roy Emerson, of course. Ashley Cooper. Ashley Cooper, I mentioned. And, of course, the thing that always confuses me, when we talk about our greats, I've got Rod Laver on top of the pile. And yet, Neil Fraser, you beat him with consummate ease at a number of finals. You always (laughs) got over the top of Laver, but... I always regarded Neil Fraser and Frank Sedgman, of course, our great mate Frank Sedgman was a great Australian too. Yes, but I always regarded so. the, yeah. the leader, the leader of our players in the fifties. Uh, uh, he, he and Ken McGregor showed us the way to um, uh, come combat the uh, internationals uh, yeah. uh, overseas because we had to go overseas all the time to get uh, that's right uh, Co- the competition. And, of course, Lou Hode as well, the great yeah, Lou Hode. You got over him. Well, you know, it was, it was an era I was lucky enough to be part of. And uh, I was in Davis Cup squads when Hode and Rosewall won the Davis Cup here at uh, Kuyong in uh, 50, 53, I think it was. Um, all the way through to... Um, I finished in my career in Davis Cup and playing in 53. So for 10 years... Um, I saw how Rosewall, Cooper, Anderson, Hartwig, um, uh, all those great players. I was very lucky to be part of that uh, era. Now, how about the taking over of the captaincy of the Davis Cup side? You you alluded to that earlier. Did you ever think when you did that first year that you'd still be there nearly a quarter of a century later? No, no, no way. Um it was, uh, yes, I was appointed in 1969 to start in 1970. And um, um, for the first few years, um, we were not even, we were in the interzone matches. We had to play in Asia, we played Korea, we had to play in um, uh, Japan, we had to play um, uh, all these um, uh, 
uh, Eastern European places and uh, Japan and, and India. And we weren't too successful in um, the first couple of years. But um, came around then at um, tennis was being gradually going from an amateur game uh, to a professional game. And I was brought up always as I was in the amateur game. And we were all, were, all were amateurs in the 60s and the um, early 70s. And the, the 70s, um, the decision was made to allow professional players to come and play in the Davis Cup. And um, that was lucky enough that in that year, um, we played in Japan, India, and then we beat Czechoslovakia in Melbourne here. And we played the USA in Cleveland. And uh, I recruited a couple of good players to um, come back into the fold. Um, in fact, I recruited not a couple, I recruited three of the greatest three. of all time. Um, Rod Laver, Ken Rosewell, and John Newcomb. So, um, Interestingly enough, you, I know you're talking about the 73 side. You, you went on record as saying that 1973 Davis Cup side in Cleveland, where you mentioned yep. the three players, you left out Mal Anderson as well, who I think yeah. was on tour with yeah, you. Well, Mal, Mal didn't play. He was the fourth member of the he team. Was the fourth he didn't member, play yeah. too much. Uh, but but um, all those players had won the US singles championship prior, and prior to 73. So... That's why I said it's the greatest team uh, to have four players in your team who are all Grand Slam singles champions. Um, never happened before and it's never happened afterwards. Neil, tell me about this transition from amateurism to professional tennis, the Jack Kramer troupe we've heard about. You were, yeah. on the, were you on the cusp of it or you just missed out on that? Uh... I had the opportunity to join the Kramer group, but uh, um, I had, did also have this ambition to be Davis Cup captain. And if I joined the Kramer group, I wouldn't have been eligible to be captain. Right. So I elected to stay an amateur. And um, uh, because the association, as I mentioned earlier, had sent me overseas in the, early in the 60s to, to uh, test whether I was capable of looking after a team. And um, as I said, I, I passed the test and eventually when Harry Hopman uh, left for overseas, um, they appointed me captain in 1970. There was no money involved in it. I was not paid to do the job for um, a number of years. Um, I was lucky enough, I was working as a AMP insurance consultant. I had my own business. I could leave, um, but we didn't. We weren't overseas for five months of the year. I were only overseas for a shorter period of time. And then um, uh, eventually in the 70s, early 70s, they, they relaxed the rules of allowing professional players to come and play Davis Cup, but it was still um, uh, very limited. There wasn't much money. Open tennis came about exactly, I think, about 1968 but there was very little prize money little. involved. And the Kramer II was um, the, the, the group that you wanted to be with yeah. of playing tennis in those days. Of course, the slams were still there, but um, and it was only about 1973 when they threw open the gates for the players to be able to play at um, 
uh, all around. You would have been offered a very, were you enticed with a, uh, a brown paper bag, a big paper bag? Yeah, well, I was, um, but I didn't think the bag was uh, big enough. Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Why would I be surprised? Uh, I really didn't have my heart in going playing exhibition matches every night yeah. or every three or four nights a week on a indoor town hall temporary court um, in various cities around the world, mainly in America. I love the idea of playing um, the amateur game and playing the Grand Slams and the tournaments leading up to it. What? Sorry, Glenn. Oh, well, I was going to... Uh, you, your interest in the Davis Cup has ever waned. Uh, you were founding president of the Davis Cup Foundation and uh, only gave that away a year or two ago. Uh, and that was just a way of getting all of the players and it's a wonderful lunch every uh, Australian Open uh, to be there and find people from Sedgman right through to the cashes and later players and that. And you did a wonderful job there, Neil, I have to say. Well, I was very proud of the um, Australian Davis Cup Foundation um, and uh, we started that in about um, uh, me, uh, about well, I was uh, vice president and president for about 50 years. So we started it in the early 70s uh, because there was a thought that we wouldn't even challenge in the Davis Cup because we were doing so bad and it was costing a lot of money. And uh, anyhow, we got it going and um, it's gone on for 50-odd um, years. Unfortunately, the Davis Cup has changed a lot. Um, but I was very proud to be vice president and I became president of the um, foundation uh, for a number of years. And uh, I've just stepped down on the board last year, or, or stepped down as president, I mean. And, you, uh, and of course, you've kept your interest in sport. You're a, a keen golfer at Kingston Heath and you play there, well, at least once a week and probably more. Well, I'd love to. I'm struggling to play twice a week now, uh, Leon. Um, but uh, with the use of a card and some uh, friendly uh, members who uh, put up with me, I do enjoy my golf very much. And uh, every Wednesday I try to play in the comp and uh, uh, have the opportunity of having a bit of exercise and hitting a ball and uh, enjoying the company. And there's no doubt... Uh, my life is, it, it keeps me healthy and fit, uh, just endeavouring to play the game uh, once a week. Now, before I share this bottle of red with you, I want to ask you something else, because I know you're a rational, well-balanced person. Uh, what red have you got there? I'll tell you in a minute, Leon, it's a secret, but our favourite red. Uh, now, I know our guest imbibes in a brief libation of uh, a red every now and again. Now, Neil... Uh, your take on the contemporary game, the behaviour of our contemporaries, the money in the sport, uh, what are your views on that? Um, you're fading away a little bit there. I right, let, uh, hear, but what are your views on the, the behaviour of our... Sport, well, um, it, it's, uh, sport has become a business um, and uh, even the Olympics are uh, really a business. Um but it's, uh, I'll always encourage anyone to play some sort of sport. 
because the, um, the the benefits that you get out of uh, whether it be tennis, whether it be cricket, whether it be football, whether it be golf, is um, they're, they're great um, uh, things to do for your health and the enjoyment and uh, skill. What about the behaviour of some of our players, Neil? You know, we always regard our Australian champions with the greatest degree of grace. Well, you know, and there's you- always the exception to the rule, isn't there? Um, America's had their McEnroe's and Connors. Um, we've got. Um, we used to have Mervyn Rose. Uh, <laughs> um, it starts with a K. Um, Kyrgios. <laughs> yeah, he. he, he um, um, has his highs and lows, but he's having very few highs and a lot of lows. That says it's, it beautifully. It's sad to see such a great player mm. um, not um, not uh, enjoy the game the way that uh, I and uh, my fellow players, the Coopers and Rosewalls and Sedgmans and Lavers, enjoyed um, in the years past, gone by. What about Wimbledon losing their ranking points over the Russia ban? Um, I'm not in. I, I'm in favour of the ban because, um, let's face it, um, I wouldn't be inviting any Russian person to come to my place at any time now. At this time, um, what about Vladimir and, Putin if he rang you? <laughs> Highly unlikely. I think the, the phone would be engaged. <laughs> um, but um, the ranking points, it's um, only penalising the good players who um, uh, they all say that they're against uh, what is going on in Ukraine. Um, but uh, through not uh, uh, playing, or well, the ATP taking the points away from them that's their players association so they're only they're only penalising their own players yeah and a person like Dokovic who is the holder of the title and 2,000 points he won through last year if he doesn't get to uh, to get the points play for points this year uh, he loses those 2,000 points they go off it works on a yearly basis and um, his ranking dropped probably down outside the top 10, ten yeah. which is uh, not, not right. Now, back to our bottle of red. <laughs> uh, we, uh, our very good mutual friend, Jerry Ryan, has Mitchelton Winery, who uh, is our wonderful sponsor. And Leon and I, and I know your good self, occasionally have a very pleasant red. And Mitchelton provides some of the greatest reds in the uh on the uh, on the red calendar, the free world, the free world, well, the free world. Yes, they uh, are the great Shiraz, the print which we uh, Leon imbibes in. I'm slightly more frugal; I get the cheaper version, but it's still a very very good drop, Neil. And uh, we look forward to sharing one with you very shortly, because we allocate all our uh, guests a couple of bottles, two or three bottles, of which Leon will deliver to you personally. Uh, bearing in mind, the guy that received our first guest three years ago. He's still waiting for his bottle, so don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Mel Brown. <laughs> so, fair to say, Leon's acquired a habit there. Before we go to you two, players, two people, I just want to mention that one of the things that I'm most proud about in my sporting uh, career, both on and off, off the court, 
is that um, I became chairman of the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 1995 uh, uh, and uh, 96, and it was. Um, um, not travelling as well as it should have been at that time, but um, I was uh, encouraged to um, join the Hall of Fame uh, board at that time by Donald Truscottic, and um, uh, I got uh, uh, board members together, Rob D. Costello, Herb Elliott, Lindsay Gaze, Rod Marsh, Marjorie Jackson, Dawn Fraser, Ron Barassi, Karen Morass, um, and we got the Sport Australia Hall of Fame back onto an even key, keel, and it's going very well now under the auspices of uh, um, John Bertram. And uh, um, also, the, the thrill I got of the Hall of Fame was that I went to see Sir Donald Bradman uh. after uh, a lot of in, endeavour to get an appointment. I flew to Adelaide to see him, to get him to agree to uh, um, have what we call, has called, we call the Don Award. And um, he uh, um, was kind enough to allow me to uh, visit, uh, go to his home and discuss it. He brought his um, son, John, in to um, uh, make sure that... Uh, uh, I wasn't uh, putting one over him or that. Um, to validate and, uh, it. <laughs> uh, it was agreed upon that he would uh, give us, allow us to have the title of the Don Award, and that has become the most prestigious sporting award in Australia. And uh, that's one of the greatest uh, highlights of my life to have uh, uh, done that with the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. Fantastic! Well, what a what a superstar, Leon. Well done, Neil. And uh, you, you you yourself are a member of the Australian and International Halls of Fame, and uh, and quite rightly so too. So it's a pleasure having you on Sport and Life, Neil. And we look forward to seeing you uh, live again soon. It was uh, nice to catch up with you socially with Sam and I last week, but uh, we'll catch you again soon, Neil. And thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. It was a thrill to talk to you guys. What an iconic Australian.